continuing through Exodus, Exodus 25, 10-22, the title of my sermon, Heaven Comes Down. Heaven Comes Down. Here's the big idea. God means to rule over his people by his word through sacrifice. God means to rule over his people by his word through sacrifice. Who likes architecture? Who's been to big cities, maybe New York, other cities in Asia, Japan? That's a country, but um, who, who appreciates art? I love art. I really do. Humans, like a good man, humans have contru- constructed, built some pretty amazing things, buildings, architectural structures. Let me name a few. Maybe you've heard of the pyramids in Egypt. Who's seen them in person? Okay, the Parthenon. Anybody? Good. Taj Mahal. These buildings are massive, and and most people have heard of them, or you've seen pictures, or you've seen them on TV. More recently, you have the Burj Khalifa. Where's that? It's in Dubai. It is now the world's tallest skyscraper, standing over 2,700 feet tall, 163 stories high, a thousand feet taller than the Empire State Building. That is incredible. We we marvel at these things, and again, seeing them on TV or on a picture in a book is one thing, but to behold them in person is another thing altogether. But we marvel at these things, don't we? But do you realize that none of these things compare to the tabernacle? Now granted, the, the tabernacle pales in sheer size in comparison to most of these structures. It wasn't massive by any means. But that's not what makes the tabernacle so incredible. It's the only building, the only building ever designed by God and constructed according to his plan. And with that, there is, and I mean this, there is no structure in the Old Testament that teaches us more about the person and work of Jesus Christ than the tabernacle. So where do we begin? Well, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, concerning Israel's worship, and so again, last week if you were here, I spent a lot of time reviewing chapters 1 to 24. What happens in Exodus? God's people are in trouble. They're slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God. God hears their cries. He raises up a deliverer in Moses sends Moses to Pharaoh with the message, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. That results in a series of plagues. Finally, we have Passover, a substitution, a lamb in place of the firstborn. God delivers his people, parts the Red Sea, brings them to the mountain, gives them his word. And now we're beginning to see this is what Israel's worship is to look like. And it begins with a place. And it's a cool place because it's a movable temple. Later we'll see the temple, but the tabernacle was a movable temple. But concerning Israel's worship, the Ark of the Covenant, this is the first item they are instructed to make. So it is fronted in our text, therefore it is to be regarded as the most important. I want us to answer four questions this morning related to the Ark of the Covenant. Four. Number one, what is it? And if your understanding of the Ark has been informed by a Harrison Ford movie, 
We're going to correct that this morning, okay? <laughs> so number one, what is the ark? What is the ark? Number two, what's its purpose? Number three, what does it teach us about God? And number four, how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? So first, what is it? What is the ark of the covenant? The ark was essentially a golden box or chest. It was rectangular in shape, about four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet deep. As you heard, as Pastor Paul read, it was made of acacia wood covered or overlaid with gold. It also included a cover or lid, also known as the mercy seat, and it was made of pure gold, and it was to be placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant itself was housed in the inner sanctuary, and so the tabernacle, it's about a hundred, it's a big tent, basically, 150 feet long, about 75 feet wide, and in the tabernacle there was a courtyard, and then on the western side you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place. And the most holy place, again, uh, one person once a year on the Day of Atonement was granted access, but the only furnishing found in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Is that significant? It's very significant. Now, are there other furnishings? There's uh, a table and uh, a candle stand and a basin. Uh, there's other things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. But again, what comes first? The Ark of the Covenant. Where is it found in the most holy place? Now, one more thing worth noting. This is really significant. But again, when you read a passage like this, it's easy to miss. Four gold rings were attached to this chest, two on either side. And with that, there were two long poles made of acacia wood covered in gold that would go through the rings for what purpose? Transportation. But that's not the only reason. Why the poles? Why couldn't guys just grab the box? I mean, it wasn't that big. What would happen if they did? They would die. And so this was God's grace. The poles were to prevent anyone from touching it directly. This was a reminder of the awesome holiness of God. God is holy. That's what the ark is, but what was its purpose? I mean, it was a golden box with a golden lid housed in the most holy place. But what was its purpose? It was to contain the testimony given to Israel by God. And this, of course, refers to the, the two stone tablets, the ten commandments, the covenant obligation, God's word. It was to house God's word, his law, his commands. And this is mentioned twice. And again, if you've been with us for any amount of time, we've talked about the importance of repetition. When something is repeated, what's the purpose? What's the reason for emphasis, right? So when something's mentioned twice or more in the Bible, your ears should just kind of perk up. So listen carefully, verse 16, and you shall put into the ark, again, the ark is the golden box, four foot long, two foot wide, two foot deep, golden lid, we've talked about this. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So it, this is really important. It's going to contain the word, God's commands, his law. What's going to be in it? And there's going to be other things as well, but for now, we're going to talk about the word, the covenant obligation, the Ten Commandments. 
etched on stone by God. Verse 21, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, that was the lid, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Now, why, this is so good, why is this important? Namely the fact that God's word, his law, his commands were housed in the ark. The word was housed under the mercy seat. Again, the mercy seat was another name for this lid, this cover. What we're going to see is that this mercy seat, this lid, was to be the very throne of God. It was the place where God would descend as king to rule over his people. So the word, get this, was housed under the mercy seat, under the throne, bringing together the two ideas of kingship and word. Everybody say kingship. Word. Got it. Okay, good. Here's the point. God means to rule as king over his people by his word. Did you catch it? That's significant. God means to rule over his people, his rescued people, by his word. God's word was at the heart of their worship and their relationship with the one true God. Now the lid, or mercy seat, as mentioned earlier, was made of Pure gold. And on top of the lid, if you were listening, were fashioned or sculpted two cherubim or angelic beings facing, now this is important, they're facing one another, but they're looking down. They're looking down towards the cover in reverence. Furthermore, their wings were spread out like this over the ark, overshadowing the cover. Now, cherubim are mentioned over 90 times, almost 100 times exactly in the Old Testament. First where? Anybody know? Genesis 3.24. God makes everything. He makes his image bearers, Adam and Eve. They ruin everything. <laughs> you know, our, what do they do? God gives them his presence. He gives them a garden in which to dwell with them. He gives them his word but he gives them a command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will surely die. And of course, they eat. They believe the lying serpent, Satan, rather than the God of truth. And they are, what? Kicked out of the garden. And in place of the entrance, God puts cherubim to guard the way, to protect and preserve God's holy, sacred place. Now, this is pretty cool. I wanted to read this. I wasn't going to, but I'm going to. Somebody say, do it. I'm doing it. All right. For a more detailed description of these angelic beings, we're going to go to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 5 to 11. It's worth reading. It's cherubim. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. They had four. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above, 
Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Hopefully our kids are like, wow, that's pretty cool. And hopefully the adults are like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. It's amazing that God would make such creatures. Now, in a very real sense, their presence in the most holy place atop of the Ark of the Covenant conveyed the sacredness of the most holy place. And how were they postured? They were fashioned in such a way that they were facing each other looking down. And so their posture, get this, their posture of reverence was meant to serve as an example to God's people in worship. If these magnificent creatures bow down before the Lord, so should His people. Amen? It was a reminder to approach the Lord in reverence and awe. And lastly, from the mercy seat, God would rule over His people by His Word. Now what's interesting is on this cover, you have these two golden cherubim facing each other, heads bowed down, but the space in between was empty. I mean, shouldn't something go there? You would think. I mean, why is the space empty? One brother writes, God did not tell Moses to make any representation of his divine being. Any such representation would have been a graven image, an idol. Instead, the space between the cherubim was left It was left empty. That was your cue. Only to be filled with the living presence of God. Oh, again, this is where God would come down visibly to rule over His people by His His Word. Verse 22, this this is so good. There, there is referring to the mercy seat, the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. There, I will meet with you. God will meet with His people. Somebody say, whoa! That's really good. God will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you and commandment for the people of Israel. From this place, God is going to rule. He's going to speak. Now, what is this a picture of? Again, It is a clear picture of God ruling as king by his word over his people. Now, in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2, the Ark of the Covenant is described as the footstool of the Lord's throne. One brother writes, at this point, referring to, again, the Ark of the Covenant, housed in the most holy place within the tabernacle, At this point, heaven and earth are linked with God seated in heaven and His feet resting on the earth. And not only, and this is really important, oh, it just gets better. And not only would God rule by His Word from this particular place, but this particular place would serve as the location for atonement. Oh! Because again, the question remains, how can God meet with His people? How can God speak to His people? How can God show up before His people? His people are what? They're sinful. So what must be provided? At one or atonement. This is where 
the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and the most holy place, this is where atonement or reconciliation would happen through substitution, through sacrifice. Now, the Hebrew word for all my Hebrew speakers out there, the Hebrew word used for mercy seat, are you ready? Cap, po, reth. Capo reth. What does it mean? What does mercy seat mean in the original language? It literally means performance of reconciliation. At this place, God would rule over his people by his word, but in order for that to happen, reconciliation had to be provided. Death had to happen. A substitute. Oh, On the Day of Atonement, again, once a year, you can read about this in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood, where? On the mercy seat. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant to remove the defilement caused by the sin of God's people. What? I hope you're seeing the gospel here. I really do. What would allow God to meet with, speak with, and rule over His people by His Word? What would allow that? His provision of substitutionary sacrifice. What's a substitution? One in place of another. What would allow God to meet with, speak with, and rule over His people by His Word? His provision of substitutionary sacrifice and through the sprinkling of blood, something had to die in place of sinful Israel in order for God to dwell in the midst of His unholy people. The first question, what is it? Number two, what's its purpose? Number three, what does the Ark of the Covenant teach us about God? A lot. Number one, if you're taking notes, God is holy. God is holy. Again, fashioned atop of the Ark of the Covenant, you have the two cherubim, these angelic beings looking down in reverence before God as a reminder of how God's people should approach the one true God. He's holy. He deserves our reverence and awe. It's true. Number two, God means to dwell with His people. That's what the ark teaches us. This was His throne. This is where He would rule. (laughs) Number three, God speaks to His people. In the ark we have His Word. And from the ark He will speak. So God is holy Number two, God means to dwell with His people. Number three, God speaks to His people. Number four, God, we've already said this probably 17 times, God means to rule over His people by His his Word. Again, the Ark of the Covenant brings together, if you get nothing else this morning, get this, the Ark brings together the two ideas of kingship and Word. God rules over His people by his, His Word. And finally, God means to bring heaven down. Isn't that the end of our story? Isn't that what happened in the middle of our story? Isn't that what happened at the beginning of our story? (laughs) That's a pretty important theme in Scripture. God means to bring heaven down. Now, get this. The tabernacle and later the temple 
were patterned after what? They were patterned after heaven. They were designed after heaven. What Moses beheld when brought into the heavenly, glorious presence of the Lord, he was then commanded to make for God's people. Exodus 24, 17 to 18. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then Exodus 25, verse 9, this was the hinge verse I talked about from last week, connecting verses 1 to 8 to 10 to 22. It's a hinge verse. Exodus 25, 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make. Moses makes what he sees in the glorious presence of God. Here's the point. Israel's worship on earth was to mirror the worship of heaven. And that's important for us today to realize. Amen? We'll come back to that. Again, what do we see in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place? We see God ruling over His people by His Word, surrounded by what? Angelic beings. The cherubim of gold on top of the ark were an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. They were an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. Now, Listen, what is going on in heaven right now in the heavenly throne room? What's happening? A lot. Something's happening right now, and it doesn't cease to happen. And what we do when we gather is to mirror that. Amen? So, three passages, there could have been a lot more, but Isaiah 6, 1-3. I love Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So, Heaven, God is on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So there's a temple, <laughs> and they're called to make a movable temple. Interesting. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Oh! I want to apologize for that reaction. That's just it's good, right? I mean, that's what we're seeing in the tabernacle. and That's what we see in heaven. Let the earth quake. Again, that is the appropriate response to tremble and quake in reverence before God because He is he's holy. And then 2 Kings 19.15, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the, that's right, you guessed it, the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So, the Lord is enthroned. Again, the question, let's go back. What is going on right now? What has been happening in the heavenly throne room? What are we called to mirror when we gather? When God's people gather, we should be 
mirroring what's happening there. So what is happening there? The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. These magnificent angelic beings tasked with preserving God's sacred space. Again, in the tabernacle, heaven had come down. In the tabernacle, heaven had come down. Again, this was God's desire, namely to rule as king amongst his people. All right, the final question. The final question. Number four. How does the Ark of the Covenant point to Jesus in the gospel? And I hope and pray, if you've been listening carefully, you don't have to use your imagination here. But I don't want to assume too much. So let's dig in. The same is true today. The Lord continues to rule over his people by his by his word. A rule, now this is the kicker, all right? A rule established and made possible by sacrifice. What had to happen in order for Jesus to rule over his church, his people? He had to die. This is such a clear picture of the gospel and what the gospel produces. The coming of Jesus is proof par excellence that God desires to rule over his people in fellowship. And yet, in order for this to become a reality, Jesus had to, he had to die. We sang about that this morning. Well, I'll save that for later. As we see in Exodus, and this is a good book. As we see in Exodus, in order for God to dwell with and speak to his people, there must be sacrifice. At the cross, provision was made for sinners like you and me. The ransom price was paid, God's wrath against our sin satisfied, and a way opened through faith in Jesus for us to have fellowship with God. And all God's people said, Amen. You see, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, especially John, I love John, and that's why you're going to see it's going to be such a smooth transition going from Exodus to John, because no Gospel, Mark does reference Exodus, Isaiah a lot, but John looks back to Exodus time and time again. So it's going to be really sweet. We're going to see a lot of promise and fulfillment. In the Gospels, especially John, Jesus establishes himself as the true tabernacle and temple. He is the place of sacrifice, the place where heaven and earth meet. Now recall John's gospel, John 1.14. And the word became flesh, and the Greek literally reads, and tabernacled among us. <laughs> I think John's trying to tell us something. The word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And if you go back... He already establishes that the Word is God. Jesus is God. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we go to John 1.51. And He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John 2, 19 and verse 21. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
Again, in Jesus. Now we're asking the question, how does the Ark of the Covenant point to Jesus and the good news about Jesus? In Jesus, heaven had come down. Amen? Heaven had come down. And through Jesus, a way to heaven opened. (laughs) In Jesus, heaven had come down. And through Jesus, a way to heaven opened. Aren't you thankful this morning? Oh. What the ark represented, how it functioned, has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the embodiment of God's Word. And all God's people said, Amen. He is the embodiment of God's Word as the Word made flesh. He is God with us. He is the King of kings. He is the once for all sacrifice so that we can be near God. At the heart... Whenever you hear that phrase, you should, oh, what, at the heart? That means it's really important. At the heart of Israel's worship was the Word of God in sacrifice. Again, what was housed in the ark, the testimony, the Ten Commandments, what happened atop of the ark, atonement was made through sacrifice. So again, at the heart of Israel's worship was the Word of God in sacrifice. And in order for God to rule over His people, in order for God to be near His people, in order for God to speak to His people, what had to happen? There had to be sacrifice. Why? Because we're, we're sinners. We're sinners. God speaks and God forgives. Again, what do we learn about God? God speaks and God forgives. When we come to the Gospels, what do we learn about God? God speaks and God forgives. That's what the Ark of the Covenant reveals about God in Christ, the Son of God, and the Gospel. God desires to dwell among His people, and He provides a way so that we can. What grace. Now, when we step back, everybody just kind of take a step back, not literally, but just in your mind, step back, and I want us to look at the whole of Exodus. What do we learn? The God who graciously rescues His people does so that He might dwell with them and rule over them by his by his word all right let's finish with some application what are we to do with this glorious picture and what it communicates to us about god and the gospel i mean this is a glorious picture i mean i've learned so much i hope you've learned something what do we do with this (laughs) it'd be appropriate to just sing right now right We're in awe of who God is. He's faithful, he's good, he speaks, he rules, and he makes a way for sinners like us, unholy sinners, to be in the presence of a holy God through sacrifice. And all of this pointing to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No more sacrifice is necessary, amen? But what do we do with this? Number one, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Now that might have surprised you. That's where you're going to go first? Yes, and here's why. When you read the Lord's Prayer, starting in verse 9, Jesus says, he's teaching his followers how to pray. Pray then like this, our Father, where? In heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. Again, we must remember that the tabernacle was intended to mirror heaven. God's Perfect rule in heaven was to be seen in his rule over his rescued people on earth. 
That's the point of the tabernacle. We should pray for this. We should pray for this. As instructed by Jesus, namely, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of my next points, not the very next one, but you'll see what we do now when we gather should mirror and reflect what's happening in heaven. Amen? Number two, number one, pray the Lord's Prayer. Number two, practice reverence before God. Practice reverence before God. What we learn from Scripture time and time again is that God is holy. And therefore, we must revere Him. We must be in awe of Him. We must never approach Him cavalierly. And the greatest way, maybe you're wondering, how do I... I would do that. The greatest way to practice reverence before a holy God is to be holy, is to practice holiness. Are you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's who I'm talking to right now, and I'll talk to unbelievers later, but if you're a a follower of Jesus, are you right now practicing holiness, set-apartness, Meaning, are you seeking to honor the Lord in all that you do and say and think? Holy means set apart. Do you view your life as set apart unto God? My life is yours, Lord, and what I say and what I do with my time and how I think, I want that to honor you. That's what it means to be holy. I want us to ask together, where do we need to focus more attention on our lives as it pertains to holiness? Are there areas in your life that you're not setting apart to and for the Lord? Repent. Pray about that. Seek accountability. I think where a lot of us struggle as Christians is we know, I mean, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to make us more like the Son of God. Now, I say that a lot because it's, it just it rhymes. Hopefully you get that. But one of the things the Spirit does is the Spirit convicts us is, brings to our memory God's wonderful resources, the Word, prayer, but also the people of God. And I think where a lot of us fall short is we, okay, yes, I need to do better here. I want to do better here because I have the Spirit of God living in me. I have a new heart. I see what your Word says. But because we're prideful, we don't ask others in the church to help us. We don't enlist the help of others. So again, if you can honestly say, yeah, there's some areas in my life right now that are not set apart unto the Lord, Okay, good. Praise God that you see that, repent of that, and seek out accountability in the church. Amen? Because again, I say this a lot. If you're, you know, if you're running a race, you, know, you don't want anybody beside you. But Paul describes the Christian life as a race. But in this race, if you're running and there's no one to your right or left, you're not running the right way. We're meant to run with others. So as a Christian, as you run this race and follow Jesus, you should always see brothers and sisters to your right into your left. Amen? Next, come under the Word of God with the people of God. Now, if God, it's so clear in our passage, and it's so clear in the Word, if God means, if He purposes to rule over His people by His Word, then we must be committed to knowing it and doing it. But you won't know it, and therefore you won't be able to do it if you're not reading it, if you're not gathering to hear it preached, if you're not studying it with others. Make it a habit to read the Bible. Again, God means to rule over His rescued people by His 
word. Therefore, we need to know the we need to know the word. It's his word. So make a habit of reading it on your own, reading it with others, and gathering it to hear it read and sung and preached. And lastly, here, I got two more, sorry, two more. Second to lastly, seek to preview heaven with God's church when we gather. Meaning, this happens when a holy faith in Christ, spirit filled, People come together to hear the word. Why do we come together? To hear the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, and to obey the word. It happens when we walk in gospel unity. Amen? So again, the point there, seek to preview heaven with God's church when we gather. And lastly here, praise and thank God for his gracious and glorious provision of a sacrifice so that we can be with him. And who is that sacrifice? Jesus. Let me end with an illustration here. Let me talk to my ladies. Ladies, imagine getting married. Imagine getting married and your husband building you your dream home. Whoa, right? Everything you ever wanted in a home. Chip and Joanna. Just... Filling that house with all the things you ever wanted. But the husband tells you, I'm sorry, I I won't be there. What? You're going to build me this home, the home I always wanted, but you're not going to be there? And the husband says, of course we'll see each other from time to time, but I'm not going to be in that house. That house, hopefully, ladies, would then mean what? Nothing. Nothing. Without the presence of your spouse, it would be worthless. What made the tabernacle so incredibly special, so distinct, so amazing? What was it? It's the presence of the Lord. Because the presence of the Lord is everything. What the tabernacle communicates so clearly, and all of Scripture for that matter, is that God desires to be present with us. And what we see from Genesis to Revelation is that he goes to incredible lengths to make this happen. The climax of Scripture is the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, left heaven, came to earth, lived the life we could not live, died in place of sinners on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve, satisfying the wrath of a holy and just God, and then three days later he rose again, conquering death, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, blazing a trail back to heaven for sinners like us. And if you would trust in Jesus and turn from your sin, if you would say, you know what, I'm a sinner, Lord Jesus, I I deserve death, I deserve separation. You died for me. You rose again. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to give you my life. Guess what the word promises? You're forgiven and you're his for how long? Forever. Forever. Isn't that good news? Hey, if you're a believer, share that news with somebody this week. Pray for opportunities to share that good news. If you're not a believer, man, talk to me or one of the pastors today about what it looks like to follow Jesus again Trust in Jesus. 
You know, when I say get off the throne, I often use that as an image for repentance. We, because of sin, want to rule our lives independently of God. But the Bible says and life teaches us that's disastrous. It will end in eternal death, hell, eternal separation, God's punishment forever. The good news is Christ took the punishment so that we could be spared the wrath of God and made children of God. So trust in Jesus and then plug into a church and grow with God's people and reflect God's heavenly rule until he comes back and we're with him forever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, the King of Kings. Oh, Lord, we're so guilty of sin. We have sinned against you. We naturally have hard hearts. We shake our fists at you. But in your grace, Father, you sent the Son to rebels, to God-haters. And Jesus, you died for us. You not only lived for us, you died for us and you rose again. And for that, we're thankful. We praise you, O King. We praise you, O Savior. I pray that because of that good news and your indwelling Holy Spirit amongst and inside your people, that we would live differently, that we would truly mirror and reflect what's happening in heaven, that we would display your perfect rule through our relationships, through our love and commitment to Jesus, our King. And I pray, Jesus, that you would rule over your church here at Kelty's by your word. Reveal to us any areas in our life where we're not set apart. And I pray that you would move us to repentance and help us to enlist the help of fellow believers to come alongside us and spur us on in the gospel. And Father, may we be a missional church, a church committed to making disciples that make disciples by going out into our relational worlds and heralding, proclaiming, announcing the good news that the Savior has come in a way to heaven open through trusting in Jesus. And I pray that we would boldly tell that good news and call others to repent, to turn from sin, the sin of doubt and disbelief, and to trust in Jesus. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen.